Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, welcome everyone to uh, City Beautiful Church. Um, my name is Ryan, I'm pastor here, and we're beginning a new series today. We've had this kind of grand vision for the year we felt like the Lord gave us about October, November of last year, uh, which is together with one heart and mind, drawing closer to God. And we started off the year really saying, you know, what is, what is God like? What is God's heart? Let's examine that first before we do anything else. And then over the past uh, three months or so, we've been really digging deep on what does it mean to, for God to speak and then for us to listen to him in listening to the voice of God. And now we're in this series called uh, Responding to the Invitation of God. When we uh, take the risk of listening to God, what do we do with what we hear? Because I think that's the real challenge, right? I think, if we're honest, many of us, maybe we believe that God speaks, but we don't really want to know what he has to say because then we're responsible, right? Um, I hear a lot of, ooh. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, there's the door, you know? Uh, we are a welcoming community here, you know? Everyone's welcome as long as you're uncomfortable. Um, so we're beginning this series, and over the next couple of months, we're going, to be doing, we're going to be examining this. What do you do once you hear from God? What does that transformation look like in your life that you kind of turn around and you're, you're asked to do something, to go somewhere, to speak something, to think in a different way? And what I really want us especially to be focusing on uh, today and perhaps over just the next couple Sundays, almost again, as, you, know, you know I love those series within series, is how do we learn how to think like Christians? You know, if, if we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, that God is speaking to us and it actually shifts our perspective of who we are, of what the world, what's going on in the world and how we're called to respond to it. And so I want us to begin with this today. Every response to God puts Jesus more and more at the center of our reality. Every response to God puts Jesus more and more at the center of our reality. So I'm going to pray and we're going to dive right in. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here, that you are with us and that you are for us. God, you are not a God who visits us on the weekends um, and we check in with you and then we go about our quote unquote normal everyday lives, but you are a God who is intimately woven into the midst of who we are, of what we're doing that this is your creation, this is your world, this is your house. And Lord, it's up to us to learn how to listen to you in a way that we slowly wake up more and more day by day to recognize that you are at the center of everything. So Lord, we all bring in with us different understandings of hearing you speak, of your heart, your desire, not just for the human family, but for all of creation. But Lord, all of that we lay before you today because there's no theology or philosophy. There's no opinion that we can hold on to tighter than just being able to allow you to see those things time and again and to point out to us what's actually true. Lord, we don't want to come in here with any idolatrous notions of, of things and ideas um, even if we think that they're from you, if they get in the way of us knowing you on a deeper level. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. 
So we're going to be um, looking at a, a passage of scripture today from Acts chapter 17. This is in the story of Paul as he's uh, beginning his evangelistic mission. First, he's you know kind of spending time with the Jewish people in uh, in the Middle East, and he's he's got this goal. He has this vision that eventually he wants to make it towards Rome. Rome was the center of the entire world in the day of Paul, and that was kind of the political capital of the world, going toe to toe with Caesar, and that's really what he felt like was the best place to be able to go and preach the gospel. And a lot of what we find in Acts is Paul slowly trying to make his way towards Rome, and he's stopping in a lot of different towns and villages and cities. Um, First, usually his pattern was to go and speak to the Jews that were there to announce to them that their Messiah had in fact come in Jesus of Nazareth. And he would start there in the synagogues, debating with the Jews, going through the scripture, revealing to them that this is who Yahweh had prophesied was going to come, not just to to set the Jews free, but to set the whole world free. And then from there, Paul would often go out into the marketplace and begin engaging with people um, in the city that weren't necessarily Jewish. Maybe they had some awareness. They were called um, God-fearers, or perhaps they had no idea of the Jewish God and the, the Jewish scriptures at all. And this is where we find this story in Acts 17. Paul has made his way to Athens. If Rome is kind of the political capital of the ancient world, then Athens was the cultural capital. This is where all the great arts, philosophy, um, all the newest ideas were coming out of Athens. And so Paul finds his way there um, to engage with some of those. And what we find here is a sermon from Paul that's rather unique from many of the other sermons that we find in Acts. There's, I think, five or six really powerful, long sermons from Peter, from Paul, from a couple others. And this, um, this sermon is really unique because he's engaging with people that have no concept of the Jewish scripture. And so you will not find Paul going up and saying, listen, the Bible clearly says this because they say, what's the Bible? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so he needs to find a way to enter into conversation with the Athenians that he can still open them up to who the, tr- the truth of who God is. And so what we're going to find here is he's engaging with several different philosophies and ideas that were prevalent in the ancient world um, that found their epicenter in Athens, two of which especially are um, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And we'll get into that a little bit. You didn't know you were going to learn about some ancient Greek philosophy when you came to church today. But I'm going to read this story, and I want you to kind of picture this, this area. Um, they, they, Paul begins to speak to some of them. They think, oh, this is really interesting. We kind of want to hear more. Um, we want you to come to the Areopagus, which is kind of like a, a marketplace, an exchange of ideas. And this is where we're beginning to engage with them. So, Um, These philosophers took him and brought him to a meeting in the Areopagus, where they said to him, this should be on the screen, there we go, Um, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. I love this. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. You know, sometimes it's not that hard for us to think ourselves into the ancient world, okay? Um, So this should already be going, okay, yeah, yeah, I see where we're, we're headed here. So Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And he's using this word as a compliment. You know, sometimes we have this negative connotation with the word religion. He's using it as a compliment, okay? He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. 
And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So in the Areopagus, there's, you know, all these different philosophies, different religions. It's, they're kind of, everybody's in debate, but it's a very pluralistic society. And there are statues and monuments all over the place for all of these different gods. If you know anything about Greek and Roman uh, theology, you know, there's all the Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite, all these different gods. And just to make sure they got it right. There's one and it just says, to an unknown God. Just in case we missed anybody, we're still going to worship the unknown God so that he or she can feel satisfied and you know, get their little sacrifice or whatever it might be. So this is, Paul finds this little thing in their culture and goes, okay, there's my hook. That's the thing that I'm going to use to draw them into the reality of who God really is as revealed in Jesus. So he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. You remember a lot of those gods in the Roman and the Greek world, it's kind of pay for play, okay, right? You sacrifice a sheep, they give you some rain. You sacrifice your firstborn, they're going to give you a house. I don't know. I don't know how it works. But it was very transactional with their gods. And the gods needed human beings. They're like us, just bigger and angrier and, and have more powers. But basically, they have needs like us, and they need us to satisfy their needs. So he said, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then he quotes uh, from two poets here. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, a uh, brief little poll. How many of you think that the internet, net positive, that's, a, that's been a good invention for mankind? Okay, how many of you, you say, you know what? I kind of liked when we sent postcards to each other and there was like one store, there's a general store on the main street and you want to go back to that. Anybody? How many of you, jury's still out when it comes to the internet? Yeah? Okay, that's fair. Um, so I'm at an interesting age where I actually remember a time before the internet, okay? Um, when we would do things like play outside and call our friends on the telephone. And remember when you answered the phone, you went, hello? And it was a genuine question because you didn't know who it was, right? And then I remember when we got the internet. This is probably 1994, 1995. I don't know if we were on those AOL disks that you had to keep finding in order to re-up. Uh, but then the internet was great because the internet was for downloading uh, Star Wars coloring book pages 
which took you about an hour and a half to get one page and you printed it off and the internet was genuinely a good idea. But I do remember early on and then even through middle school and high school when we're learning about this new changing digital age that they said the, you know, the internet is going to be amazing because it's going to connect all of humanity. And you know the problem with humanity is we have all these different ideas and all these different tribes and, and we don't know what's going on and it's just very confusing to be a human being. So the internet's going to be this great thing. It's going to unify all of us and we're going to like knowledge is just going to be pure and absolute and it sits at the center of our reality and now it's 2019. And that has not been how that went down. That is not what happened. I think now more than ever we are in crazy town when it comes to ideas and philosophies and what's true and what's not. The internet has actually, I think, done the exact opposite of the great dreams of the original inventors. I mean, how many of you, you get articles sent to you from, from friends and family and it takes you like five minutes just looking at like the URL to go, this isn't a legit piece of information. <laughs> You know, John David, the other day, he sent me this article about how um, under President Obama, the U.S. government could no longer pay the reptilian uh, security guards to, to guard the president. And I said, John David, that's ridiculous. Reptilians wouldn't know what to do with our money. Like, do a little bit of research, you know? But there's all this information, there's all these websites out there, and there's all this stuff, and then you add in social media, which uh, you know, trades opinions as if they were facts, and we live in this absolutely crazy time. And there's this fascinating way of reading uh, sub like substantial relationships for human beings. There was a, uh, he's, he's still alive, he's a sociologist named Robert Dunbar, and he came up with what's called Dunbar's number. And Dunbar's number basically says that as a human being, you ultimately have capacity for about 150 relationships in your life. That's it. And that's not even deep relationships. That's like people that you know their name, you, knew, you know a few things about them. And if you think about human history, that was pretty true for most people. In certainly more rural and agrarian societies, if you live in a city, you're maybe interacting with a few more people than that, but you had your core family, you had your core neighborhood, you had your church community, whatever it might be, and you only actually have the brain capacity for 150 meaningful relationships. And any more relationships than you have than 150 requires more restrictive rules, laws, and enforced norms in order to maintain your sanity. So when you think about how many people you're connected to right now, via social media, via the, you know, the, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. We're all connected to him in some way. All of this information and idea and people, you feel this pressure to be connected to that larger thing. But the, the, the truth is, psychologically, what happens, the more that you feel the need to be connected, the more you actually need to create rules and laws and enforce norms within those relationships in order to not go crazy. And I think this is why the internet has done, ultimately, the opposite of what we desired for it to do. It has made us more tribal and vitriolic. It has given us a spirit of fear that we need to hold on tight tightly to these boundaries that we've created of who's in and who's out and who's safe and who's not. And I'm not saying the internet is a bad thing. I think it's done some amazing work, but this is, this is the complex area that we are in 2019. But I wonder when we read passages like this, if we don't see something very similar in, uh, in the old world. But in Athens, it was the same thing. There were all these different ideas and religions and philosophies bouncing off one another within the marketplace. And this story of Paul is actually the first engagement we see between the gospel of Jesus and the prevailing Greek philosophies of the day. And what Paul's looking at as he's looking around this city is idols and ideas. 
And so the Epicureans, that was a very popular philosophy in the day, the Epicureans said, well, maybe there's some gods, maybe there's not, but ultimately the gods are very distant and they're not super interested in us. So at the end of the day, what we need is a good personal piety just to learn to be good people. And it was all about trying to live a good and quiet and reasonable life. Don't bother the gods. Be nice to other people. The Stoics, who were often their sparring partners, said, no, no, no. The divine is within all of us. There's this divine spark in all of mankind. And we get to tap into that divine rationality. Um, in order to live a virtuous life. So when we can really tap into the divine reality within us, then we discover virtue, then we live to be virtuous people, and that's how you create a good society. There were all these pagans, of course, in the, in the culture, that we, you know, all of those previously mentioned gods, and there were tombs and temples and, and sacrificial altars and statues to all of these different gods in the Greek panoply. Um, and then also what we find there is what we might call a humble agnosticism, which is that people would come in and say, well, you know, to the unknown God, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not, but I'll just kind of tip my hat. And, you know, I'm generally, I'm a good person, and I think that that's whatever this God is would probably want. So I'll just, I'll just keep my nose to the grindstone, and I'll just kind of go about doing my thing. Um, and I'm a good person, so I'm sure I'll just get into heaven or whatever comes after that. Now, even after I've described those things, Epicureanism, Stoicism, Paganism, and then humble agnosticism, maybe it sounds a little bit more familiar to our modern era than would meet the eye if we didn't know such things. And the beauty of the way Paul engages with all the different ideas and idols in Greece is that he affirms the things that need to be affirmed and he challenges the things that need to be challenged. Because he doesn't write off people groups. He doesn't just write off philosophies and ideas, but he has this nuance and he has Jesus as his compass, his trajectory to be able to walk into all of the latest new ideas and religions to find what is ultimately true that we discover in God as revealed in Jesus and what are the things that need to be challenged. And I love that he's, he's affirming so many things in the Athenians. He says, you guys are very religious. That's great. You believe there's something more than what, what is right in front of us. You have these poets and they say, in him, we live and move and have our being. That's great. You say, we are his children. I, absolutely. But I need to tell you, there's a name and there's a face to this God. There's a personality to this God. And that's where Paul begins to raise up the person of Jesus and specifically Jesus's resurrection as the key for us understanding what is God really like and what is God actually doing in the world today. And that's really where I want us to go this morning, that every response to God puts Jesus more and more at the center of our reality. Not our ideas, not our tribes, not our philosophies, but a person in Jesus. And so what is the dumb, of all the different things that are floating around on the internet today, what is the, the, the dominant prevailing problem that I see within Christianity? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> It's that we need to be delivered from the idea of an interventionist God. Many of you believe in an interventionist God and you don't realize it. What do I mean by that? Because does God intervene? Yes, absolutely. But an interventionist God means that as a habit, this version of God is a lot like what the Epicureans thought. He's distant, he's disinterested, he lives up on a mountain somewhere, and if I do the rain dance, if I make the right sacrifices, then maybe God will pay attention to me, he'll notice me, and then he'll come and he'll give me what I need. 
And so when we believe in an interventionist God, we have internalized that same idea. God is not particularly interested in my life and what's going on with me. God is somewhere else, someplace else. But if I pray enough, if I read my Bible enough, if I make enough sacrifices, then maybe God will show up and he'll give me what I want. And we often hear this even within the language that we pray, that we believe in an interventionist God. And so there was the Epicureans, you know, in the, uh, in the early 300s BC. Uh, this is an image called, a uh, painting called The School of Athens by Raphael, and it's got a lot of the greats in there. And these Epicureans believe that the gods are up there and they're not bothered by us. This is kind of standard ancient Greek philosophy. But when we fast forward to the Enlightenment in the 18th century, we find uh, pants get fancier, <laughs> hair gets longer, but these ideas begin to seep back in. The age of enlightenment, it's kind of like the, the internet. Some of us would say, oh, it was a net positive age enlightenment, scientific reason, great idea. Some of us would go, oh, that was a terrible idea, if only because in seventh grade I had to learn the freaking scientific method and do all these experiments, and I would rather just feel my way through life. But the enlightenment in the 18th century was the first time in, in, in human history, and especially we've got to remember, this is a lot of countries that were at least culturally Christian until this point. The, what the Enlightenment did is it started to place the natural world and man's experience at the center of reality. Now, when you think of history, when you think of time, when you think of creation, what's at the center of that? If we believe in the interventionist God, that as we begin to see a lot of times in the Age of Enlightenment, it's history and time and space are just kind of moving along, ambling along, doing this thing called evolution, and then God might ever show up every once in a while. But the, the core, the center of reality is mankind's experience. One of the uh, great philosophers of that age, Rene Descartes, um, was foundational in this idea. He said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, which places me at the presence of understanding my own reality. And so everything is the Ryan show. Everything happens based upon what I'm interpreting of my own reality. Again, another modern philosophy you can see at play even today. But Rene Descartes created this idea of dualism. There's the mind and there's the body. And he was picking up on a lot of these ancient Greek philosophies that said pretty much the same thing. The physical world is kind of nasty and gross and sweaty and corrupt, but the, the spiritual world, the, 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 the place of the mind, the place of the spirit, that's, that's the real thing. That's what's really powerful. And so this dualism that kind of rears its ugly head again in the Enlightenment begins to find its way into Christian theology and into the church. And before long, we start believing the same thing, that there's not really anything worthwhile in the physical realm. We've just got to live in the spiritual realm until we get to go to this other place called heaven after we die. But in the Enlightenment, in the philosophy of Rene Descartes, the problem is that God gets rele relegated to the spiritual world. That's where God gets to reign. And that's where he gets to have his opinions and thoughts on things. Maybe he, God has an opinion on like 10% mm, of your income. We'll go ahead and give him that bit. You know, God cares a lot about where you're at on a Sunday morning. But there's a lot of things that actually God doesn't have a whole lot of opinions on. Most human endeavors. Because again, it's that Epicurean idea that the gods are there somewhere. But at the end of the day, we just have to learn how to be good people. Now, what is the problem of this? When we have internalized this story of the interventionist God. We could go through all different kinds of theologies and show how that is played out in our understanding of salvation, of heaven and hell and so many other things. Um, and then we're gonna get to some of those later on in the series. But the main problem is 
that it leaves you and I with this orphan mentality. You and I, we're inherently alone in the world. Dad is largely absent. Maybe we can give him a call on the weekends and he'll show up. But when dad shows up, we have very narrow definitions of what that is supposed to be. And you can see how that can be so problematic for us in our personal journeys with God, in our understanding of what it means to be the church, and then especially when it comes to us responding to doing whatever God is calling us to do, because we've inadvertently absorbed all of these non-Christian ideas. And the problem is that those non-Christian ideas become this lens through which we read the Bible and we think it justifies all the things that we think. Do you realize that more of your visual references for hell come from the Middle Ages and the writings of Dante than they do anything that's actually scriptural? But you're automatically going to read it that way. You see, we've got all these lenses that we've absorbed from our culture around us that prevents us from being able to think like Christians. But here's the truth. This is the story that we are choosing to live out of, that God has been at the center of time and space from the beginning. God has been at the center of time and space from the very beginning. Several months ago, I had a friend ask me this interesting question. They said, do you believe that God could reveal something to mankind that they wouldn't have come to by their own merits? The irony was that we're in this series called Listening to the Voice of God. It says, yes, I believe that God speaks. I said, I have a problem with your question because your, pres- your question assumes that mankind, we're just going along and we're making discoveries and every once in a while God comes and goes, oh, ho-hum, what do you think about fire? Let me introduce that into the mix. And then he goes back to doing his thing and we continue on and we're discovering stuff and God goes, okay, what about this? Quantum mechanics, that's really interesting. And then he goes back to his thing. <laughs> So the, the question has a problem at the core of it. Would God reveal something that mankind wouldn't have normally come to on our own terms? Every single good thing that we call truth is the revelation of God. If we believe as Christians that God is at the center of reality, everything is revelation from God that is good and true and pure. We see this in the Genesis narrative, that contrary to all the other creation stories, we have a God who is good and is at the center of creating. He creates out of joy. He's intimately tied to his creation. He is part and parcel of it. He is present to his own creation. And this isn't the same as pantheism, which is another thing that we find showing up today in the modern world, that God is everything. God is all creation. But panentheism, which means God is present in all things. As the psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? Where could I run from your spirit? You're everywhere. And we find this again in this beautiful uh, hymn or poem that Paul quotes in Colossians 1 when he's speaking of Jesus as the Christ, which is as the third person in the Trinity. He uses this line, he's speaking of the Christ. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And the early Christians found this philosophy in, 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 in the Greek pantheon called the Logos. And the, the Greeks were saying, well, there's this Logos, this word, and it seems like it's kind of like the animating force that holds the whole thing together. And the early Christians said, yes, that's right. There is a Logos, there is a word, but it's the word of God. It's the word of Yahweh. 
that when God speaks, he speaks Christ, and Christ becomes the animating force to the universe that holds all together. Do you believe that if God was not present, the whole thing would literally fall apart? Like atom by atom, molecule by molecule, you would fall apart if it were not for the presence of God acting as the glue that holds all of creation together. If this is true, if that is a true version of God, there is no such thing as sacred and secular. And the way we've chopped up our calendar tells us again we believe in the interventionist God, that Sundays are the holy day, that's when we're gonna go meet up with dad at his house, but the rest of it, he doesn't really have much of an opinion on that. If we believe a God at the center of it all, then everything is holy. Everything is imbued with the divine presence. And if we believe this God has a face and that face is Jesus and that God has a personality, then we begin to believe that maybe, just maybe, God has an opinion on pretty much everything because he created it. God has opinions and desires. And not only that, but God wants to work in his creation through those who know his voice, who knows what he sounds like and that want to be, to be part of his rescue project for his own creation. And so when Jesus, at this very center of it all, God dramatically shifts how we define ourselves and how we act in our world. Now, as a church community, we have these three foundational theological values. When you came in, you saw the icons that we have placed for those on the wall. And the first three are intimacy with God, identity in Christ Jesus, and purpose as the Spirit-led church. And you see how important this idea of God at the center of everything becomes for us. That intimacy with God is us literally putting God, as revealed in Jesus, at the center of our reality, you don't have intimacy with your landlord when you run over there to drop off your, your rent check. That's not intimacy. You don't have intimacy with God if you just show up once a Sunday and you give him your rent check. That's transactional relationship. That's not true intimacy. But many of you who are in love, you know, even when your beloved is not in front of you, they're always with you, right? When you're in love, you see the rest of the world through the eyes of your beloved. That's what it means to be in love. And so when you place God at the center of our understanding of reality, it leads us into this deeper intimacy with him. It gives us this identity that we are defined in the way that God created us for. Here's another heresy that's made its way into the church. You get to define yourself. Self-determination. Okay? Freedom means I get to be whoever I want to be, and then anytime anybody's giving me rules or regulations or laws, they're lessening my freedom in some way. That is a pagan idea that has no place in the church. God has already defined you. He created you and he gave you a purpose and he gave you meaning. He's inviting you to intimacy. And freedom does not mean you get to do whatever you want. You get to be whoever you want. Freedom means I am finally free to live into who God has called me to be. And I have to take by faith that that definition is far greater than anything that I would create for myself. And then when we speak of purpose, responding to the world out of obedience to God, being God's hands and feet. 
in recognizing that true intimacy and true identity does not mean that all it is is about what God gives you and, and him loving you and that's it, but it actually means you turning around and being part of his rescue project for the world of beginning to think more like him, to feel more like him, to act more like him. And I worry sometimes in this modern era that just like the Areopagus where there's all these different ideas and philosophies swirling around, if in order to avoid some of the conflict that we know is inevitable for us to find truth, we are embarrassed by calling ourselves Christians. Oh, because it's just too tainted. That word's too tainted. A lot of horrible things have been done in the name of Christ. Yes, that's absolutely 100% true. But as the family of God, we own all of those things and we live repentant lives. And I think the task is really to reclaim the idea that we are Christians, which means we are little Christs, which means we follow the God that is revealed in Jesus. That Jesus is not just one more little monument in kind of a smorgasbord of monuments that we have that we define ourselves by, but he is everything at the center of who we are. Several years ago, uh, uh, my dad was, was ministering to this Buddhist woman in this church that we, uh, that when we lived in Michigan. And she was a wonderful lady. She started coming uh, to the church pretty regularly and he he would, he would engage with her and she had her little Buddha statue and he said, well, you know, she came, he, he had given her a cross and she had put the cross next to the Buddha because in, in Buddhism, like, that's fair. And to be fair, Buddhism is really more of a life philosophy than it is a religion. So it's not a perfect and perfect analogous, but within Buddhism, that's completely fair. You've got Jesus, you've got Buddha, we're good. And he said, well, you can't, Jesus wants, wants all of you. Like, he doesn't want to just be this point of reference. He wants all, she says, oh, okay, okay, okay. So she, she said she was going to get rid of the Buddha. He comes around a couple weeks later, the Buddha's back out, sitting next to Jesus. He says, what do you do? I thought we talked about it. She said, well, no, Jesus, he really is. He's my savior. He's my Lord. But I just thought he maybe needed some reinforcements. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of us lived like that. No, 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 really, Jesus is my Lord and savior. But that's my personal opinion, which is, we'll get to that phrase later. Uh, but we think that Jesus needs some reinforcements. And so we reach for lesser gods. And what are those lesser gods? Philosophies, political parties, economic structures, podcast gurus. We have all these different, just little gods. They're just, they're just reinforcements, but before long, what we find is that Jesus is slowly being pushed farther and farther back in our purview. And so sometimes we're not careful when we call ourselves Christians because we don't take seriously the call to put Jesus at the center of everything or we're embarrassed to be considered Christians because of the connotations of what that means. But I think this is really the call. It's not for us to continue to make God known in terms of adding him to show up. It's us waking up to the reality of the God who has been present this whole time. We find this amazing story in Genesis 28 where Jacob, just like us, he's kind of wandering around trying to figure out who he is. He kind of knows who his, his family is and he kind of has this vague idea of this God that revealed himself to Abraham, but he's just kind of wandering around figuring out his identity and he falls asleep and he has this dream and he sees this ladder that stretches into heaven and angels coming and going and he sees this throne at the very top of it and he wakes up. And he has this revelation, it says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. And friends, is that not your experience and my experience? It's not history's just kind of doing its thing, and every once in a while, God makes a cameo. It's where you and I recognize, like, oh my goodness, God, God has been in this place this whole time, but I was the one that was asleep. I didn't realize it. 
but now I'm awake. I want to live into the reality of what that means. And this is what it is for you and I to begin the process of learning how to think Christianly. To think Christianly, to have the transforming of the renewing of our minds. It's the only way that you and I are going to be effective for the kingdom in the world as it is today. Because guess what? Just going to the Bible is not going to give you all the answers. I've looked it up. It has nothing to say about nuclear disarmament. And I'm really frustrated about that. But what, are, what are we supposed to do in the modern world when the Bible doesn't literally just give us a one-to-one -one analogous answer for what we're supposed to think? We need to learn how to think like Christians. And then, but that means that we really need to divorce ourselves from some of our pagan ways of thinking and our partisan ways of thinking. I mean, have you not seen it just this week, you know, in, in the, the light of these tragedies last weekend with these mass shootings? And we get into this familiar, you know, partisan divide of liberal and conservative and the talking points and the, the, the one-liners and the zingers and all of this stuff and people getting angry about people praying and not acting and people getting angry about people just wanting to whatever and not, you know, not pray. And, and we, it's so easy for us to get caught in those smaller gods. Those gods, we can see them, we can hear them, they're easy, they have a 24-hour news cycle, and we're just going to believe in those gods and then... Jesus gets our Sunday mornings. But the reality for us as Christians when it comes to the issue of gun control in this country is to begin to start thinking like Christians, to begin to think like Christ. What do Christians do? We pray and then we act. We pray and then we act. Our prayers are not little platitudes that we use to win over points with people to make them think that we're the kind of people that care. Our prayers are the kind of thing where we open ourselves up and say, God, I know that you're at the reality. You're at the center of everything that I am. I need you to give me eyes that see this, the reality of our situation today when it comes to these mass shootings the way that you see it. Not the way that I see it. Not the way that Fox News sees it. Not the way that MSNBC sees it. The way that you see it. Because we have such uncreative solutions to the world today when we get stuck in mankind's philosophies. Uncreative. And obviously they're not working. But when we begin to engage with God on these things, to begin to pray and then act, when we begin acknowledging God at the center of our reality, then we can bring creative kingdom solutions to the world's brokenness. We transcend all of the partisan divide, the small ideas, the small gods, and we actually begin this revolutionary act of being the hands and feet of Jesus in our day, in our time. You know, last week we were kind of honing in yet again on this little passage from 1 Corinthians that Paul is speaking about what it means to be a spirit-invested and spirit-led people. He says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Guess what? Every philosophy, every political party is going to the trash heap. It's been true throughout history, and it's going to be true today. They are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. What does it mean, destined for our glory? It means it was hidden, but now it's been revealed in us because we have intimacy with him. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
Jesus threatened the status quo of his day, the religions and the philosophies that stood in the way of the kingdom. And it got him killed. What are the philosophies that rule this age? What are the little gods and the little ideas that have been absorbed into modern Christianity that we think are basically the same thing, but if we're not aware of it, we realize that gradually Jesus becomes a little bit more faded into the background of what we think and believe. I think all of us need a spiritual practice of reading the news, but practicing putting the crucified Christ at the center of the story not running to whatever our political affiliation or economic status or whatever is, but beginning here with Jesus on the cross. Because this right here, this, in the middle of this room, this is the best vision of what God is like that you and I have ever been given and will ever be given. And when we begin to put that at the, in the center of everything that's going on in our world and we begin to ask the right questions, you and I will know how to act in ways that bring heaven to earth in ways that we never thought possible. So next week, we're going to be discussing this idea of faithfulness, not just as a passive trust, but as full allegiance to Jesus. But I want us to continue on in worship this morning as an act of putting God a little bit more at the center of everything that we are. Can you do that? Maybe that's nerve, maybe, maybe that's scary. Maybe you don't want to let go of your idols and your ideas. But that's going to be between you and the Lord. My email is ryan at citybeautiful.ch. If it's between you and me, we can also have a discussion. But I want to invite you to stand with me. as we continue in worship I want you to just close your eyes just think about something that's happened in your personal life this week something that's happened in the news something that you saw on social media opinions being uh, bandied as facts and instead of getting riled up or despondent instead of feeling like it was fuel to justify you, to justify your position, to justify the way that you think, I want you to envision Jesus on the cross. And I want you to take that event, that idea, that news article, that thing somebody said to you, and I want you to lay it down at the feet of Jesus on the cross. And I want you to say, I know I know what I think about this and I know how it makes me feel. What do you have to say? God, does your heart break for us? Are you moved to compassion for us? Lord, we are sorry for all of the little ideas, philosophies, idols, that have gotten mixed in with our Christianity. We're sorry for the times that we've been embarrassed for being called Christians because we're afraid of, more afraid of what other people would think of us than seeking to be active in our day to redeem a beautiful word. God, teach us how to put you at the center of our reality, not just our personal lives, but at the center of history, 
at the center of time, at the center of creation. And may all things we do live out of that place and become part of living in your glory. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So as you worship, I encourage you, engage with the people next to you. If you need prayer, if you're working through something, pray to the Holy Spirit. We have communion up here, the Lord's holy table for you to come and kind of as an act of allegiance to say, yes, Jesus on the cross, that's the center of my reality. But this space is for us uh, to engage with God and allow him to do what he needs to do. Uh, So let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.